This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Torn Apart, The Silent Screams of Destiny. And the author is Christopher Costeca. And Chris joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you today? Great to have you with us. This is a very, very interesting story. Uh, Basically, for 12-year-olds, 8th uh, graders, but those uh, who read this book will find that there's a, this character, of course, uh, is followed through a number of years, and he has this interesting new powers that he gains. Uh, you say this about your book, a boy, a girl, superpowers. Neil was always different, physically unimpressive, quiet and shy, not too good with the whole social interaction thing, but when he delves into a fascinating new game, Firstborn Legacy of War, it takes him places he never expected. Well, tell us about yourself, Chris, a little bit about how this book all came into being. I myself am an IT person. I'm a little bit of a neat freak like everything in its place, like to have order in my life. As far as how this book came to be, um, this has a little bit to do with that. One day I was talking to my son, and you know my son was having some difficulty in school. And I approached him, and I asked him to throw the trash out. And a few seconds later, when he walked into the kitchen, he forgot what he was supposed to do. It wasn't until later on that after my wife and I had had him tested for a learning disability that we discovered that he had ADHD. And at that point, we understood that, you know, the simple things that we were asking him to do weren't as simple as we thought. Um, As far as why did I come to write this book, um, I came to write it because of him. Because he was having a hard time, I went into his room that one night after I'd asked him to throw out the trash, and, you know, I just talked to him a bit. And I felt sorry for him. He was having a rough time in school, and he was getting pressure from me and my wife to do better. So what I started to do was to put things together that made sense to him. And he liked nights, he liked video games, things like that. So I started telling him a story about a character that was made up. And that character had a lot of qualities that he himself had. You know, somebody who was shy, introverted, but somebody who wanted to be somebody else, somebody who could, you know, be the one at school who could stand up for his friends if he needed to. Somebody who could, you know, at some point in his life realize what it is that he truly wants to be and just go out there and become that person. Those are the reasons I wrote this book. So this shy character named Neil Ori kind of fashioned after yourself. Myself um, and my son. And your son, uh, he saves the life of his older sister's girlfriend, uh, Terry, from drowning. Now, is that kind of the way, I mean, does he? how does he save her? Uh, what, what's the, 
the story behind that? Well, they're at a picnic one day, and it's a picnic, you know, at what you would call a, a picnic area, and the children are downplaying at a little alcove by a very quiet river, and while they're playing, unbeknownst to them, the dam upstream breaks and the water starts to roll down river. Neil's playing by the river and he sees you know a little sign wash up next to him, basically telling him, you know, danger, you know, be careful, watch out because you know something could be wrong. You know, he brushes the sign off and pushes it back into river and it rolls away. While he's doing that, you know, the water around him starts to rise and you know he's no longer standing in the sand, he's standing in a few inches of water. And he starts to become concerned. So he backs up away from the river towards the swing set where his sister Susan and her friend Terry are just swinging back and forth singing a song. While this is going on, the water continues to rise. And eventually, a big thunderous you know, torrent of water comes around the bend and you know, the little alcove they're in starts to fill. You know, up above them, you know, their parents start yelling for them to get out of there. It's not safe. And they start running towards the stairs. As they do, they realize that there are no stairs anymore. The stairs are now underwater. Their only way out is to basically move back towards the cliff and try and scurry their way up the cliff, grabbing branches and rocks and pull themselves up. Well, while they're doing that, the water continues to rise and, you know, the cliffside starts to fall apart and flake. And eventually, what happens is they're making their way up, and they fall in the water, Terry and Neil. Susan is lucky enough to make it up to the cliffside into the free arm, into the safety of her parents' arms. And while Terry and Neil are in the water, a branch from a tree traps Terry under the water, and Neil is swimming up to the surface. Well, Neil gets up to the surface, sees, you know, through the water, he, you know, his parents looking down, and he has a choice at this point. He has a choice to go to his parents, you know, into their warm arms and be safe, or he has a chance to go down and save Terry. And it's at this point that something inside of him clicks and changes. He decides to, you know, risk his own life, pull his way through the branches, swimming, moving his way in and out, and he makes his way to Terry. And when he gets to Terry, he pulls her to safety and basically gets her onto the stairwell. And it's at that point that, you know, he starts to change back into what he was, someone shy, someone introverted. Because for some reason within him, the instinct to save her was there, but he doesn't have those skills to know what to do once he's done it. You know, she'll reach out, try and hug him and thank him. And, you know, to uh, you know, seven or eight grader who doesn't realize, you know, the girl's trying to thank you. She puts her arms around you. have never been touched by a girl before. It's not necessarily a bad thing or an icky thing, but it's uncomfortable for someone who's never been touched. But then he gets into high school, and he, of course, uh, I guess he likes Terry and doesn't have good of self-perception, wants to be somebody that he doesn't think he is, but uh, he loves video games, and a wild thing happens at this uh, dance club where there are a lot of video games on huge screens. Well, 
one night, Terry, Susan, and their friend Charlotte, and it's basically the last night of the school year, they invite Neil just on the hopes that he'll go out with them because it's an unusual place to go. It's got great dance music, and basically on the second floor of the club, there's big video games. You know, the kids go to the video games, different kinds. And, you know, the video games on the wall, they're like 60-inch TV screen. You know, for someone like Neil, this is an opportunity he can't pass up. So when his sister invites him to go, you know, he's a little hesitant at first, but he accepts the invitation. When he goes there, you know, he's walking with his sister in the club and, you know, her sister and her friends go and dance and, you know, he's standing on the side of the dance floor. And what usually happens, you know, to somebody who's in that situation is you stand there and, you know, I've been at dance clubs before. If you're not with other people or you don't seem to be, you start being slowly pushed back. And his sister sees that other people start moving in front of him and he's being pushed back into the crowd, being swallowed up. So she comes over and takes him and shows him what he came there to see. And when he goes upstairs to see the video games, he's in awe. He doesn't know what to say. His mouth is, you know, like wide open. And you know, all his sister can say is, are you okay? And all he can basically do back is say, you know, nod his head and say yes. And she asks him, are you going to be okay here? And, you know, all he can do is basically nod his head. He doesn't know what to say. He's, he's basically in his glory at this point. But unfortunately for Neil, every time he moves forward to play the game after his sister goes downstairs, other people, other kids cut him off because he's unimpressive. He's small. He's weak. And, you know, you have bigger people just, you know, not with good manners, just cutting him off and, you know, interrupting him. Well, this goes on for a while, a half hour, hour, hour and a half, and Neil still hasn't played the game. Eventually, you know, a song comes on, and the girls downstairs come up, get their boyfriends, and in a few minutes, there's nobody left upstairs. Neil eventually now has that opportunity. He sits down and he plays the video game that he's been playing at home all these years, a game called Firstborn Legacy of War. And while he's playing the game, he's, he's drawn into it. It feels lifelike to him. It feels like this is who he was meant to be. It feels like this is something that is drawing him, it's pulling him. So he plays the game for a little while, but while he's playing, there's a big storm outside. The lightning strikes, torrential rain, and unfortunately for the club, you know, as unfortunately sometimes happens, there's a lightning strike. And the music goes out, the lights go out, and the video game stops. Well, Neil's sitting there, and while this happens, um, the lightning strikes the antenna and the satellite dish, and the power within the lightning, there's something within it, goes through the cable, into the video game, and into Neil. And his hands start glowing green, and the controller's in his hands, and he's just sitting there. He's frozen. He can't move. He doesn't know what to do. And eventually, you know, a few minutes pass, and his sister comes upstairs. The glow is gone, but he's sitting there, totally, totally in a stupor. His sister doesn't know what's going on. And she basically has to rattle his cage by raising her voice a little bit to get his attention. And he drops the controller to the floor. And when he drops the controller to the floor for them to leave, the controller is melted where his hands were touching it. The other girls don't see it because it's relatively dark upstairs. The group then leaves and proceeds back to the car. On the way back to the car, 
And what Neil is recounting the path they took, the different street names, the different little idiosyncrasies of the buildings, the bricks, everything, because on his way to the club, he memorized it, and on his way back, he knows exactly where he's going, step by step, car by car, doorway by doorway. Eventually, they get close to the car, and unfortunately for the group, they're attacked by, for lack of a better term, some men who are just mean. And these men attack the group, and they beat them all up. And after they're all beaten up, um, Neil decides to take a chance and because he sees that his sister and his friends are in trouble, so he rushes towards one of the men who's doing grievous harm to his sister and her friends. He pushes the man, the man flips, and he hits his face on a metal dumpster. The tooth breaks, and the man gets very upset. He sends two of the other men that are with him after Neil. They catch up to him and they start hurting him. And they beat him and they hurt him and they kick him. And while this is going on, the other men are rifling through their, the other girls' purses and, you know. And it's just getting worse and worse for the entire group. Well, one of the guys who's by Neil, unfortunately, decides to take it the next step. And he pulls out a knife and, you know, cuts Neil. Well, this triggers something within Neil, and, you know, Neil's squirming, trying to get away, but every time he squirms and he turns over, he just gets kicked and punched in a different way in a different spot. Eventually, something happens, like I said, something trips within him, and while this is being triggered, that knife is stabbed into his leg, and when it's stabbed into his leg, that's it. Something trips within him, and the glow that was in the club starts to come over his body. And not only does the glow come over him, but his eyes are closed from all this beating and everything, and the men who were beating him start to back up. Well, Neil opens his eyes, and what he sees, he doesn't see men anymore. He sees what he perceives to be creatures from the video game that he was playing. For lack of a better term, you can call them beasts or whatever, or orcs, whatever it may be. And that's what he sees these men as. But not only does he see them as that, but he doesn't see himself as himself. He doesn't have, you know, fingers anymore. His hands are in metal gauntlets. You know, he's wearing armor. And, you know, he's changed somehow. doesn't know if it's real right now. So what Neil does is he takes that sword from his leg and he proceeds to attack and kill the men who were attacking him beasts, men, and as he attacks them and he, you know, takes them to the imminent demise, as the pieces from these people fall to the ground, they don't fall as beasts. They fall as, you know, a hand, you know, an arm. They don't fall as beasts. Those pieces, when they hit the ground, they're human again. Neil, you know, having dispatched them, turns and he starts walking towards, you know, his sister and her friends and the other guys that are there, they run off. They don't know what to perceive at all. Neil has no idea what they see, but they flee, and Neil works his way over to his sister and her friends, and as he does, he changes back into his weak and frail self. And as he crawls his way over to his sister, he finds her cell phone and calls 911 for help. So this is quite a story of uh, 
this young man, Neil Ori, who I guess is living two different lives or in two different realms, is that it, with, uh, of course, these dark forces trying to destroy him? That is a, a, a good way to interpret it. The two different realms are the reality as we know it, which is where most of the book takes place, and the other part of it is what Neil perceives or wants himself to be. That's the other realm, where he's a knight, where he's a hero, where he's a champion, someone who can do good, someone who can protect those who can't protect themselves. Those are the two realms that Neil sees himself in. Now, I'm not going to necessarily tell you whether or not both of those are real or both of those are not. Um, you know, there's some... Uh, there's a little bit of a lead way in the book to tell you you know, up until a certain point, which is which. And I'm not going to tell you. Um, it doesn't get defined within the context of the book as to whether or not it's real. Absolutely. But most of what happens, 99% of what happens, is only from Neil's perspective and what he sees. So as far as, is it two realms? Yes. Is it a video game? Only in Neil's mind. Well, this is a, a quite a, a story of Neil trying to find who he really is, I guess, to uh, and also to become what he wants to be for Terry as well. So it's uh, that's that's correct. And you know, as far as him wanting to become what he wants to be for Terry, um, over the years, you know, Neil and Terry are in the same high school, and you know, the initial feelings that. Terry had for Neil when he saved her life at an early age, those feelings never went away. Right. She's always kept something inside of her. Um, you know, she wants to thank him somehow. But as, you know, Neil, for lack of a better term, starts to change in high school because of what happened to him at the club. Um, and what I mean by change is um, up until what happened to Neil at the club, he was physically unimpressive, didn't exercise. Um, after all of that, he wants to change. He wants to be the person who can protect his sister, the person who can protect Terry in the future. And the only way he knows how to do that is to exercise and, you know, become more physically fit. And as he does this, he changes. He becomes stronger. And as he becomes stronger, Terry takes more of a notice to him because he's not that weak, introverted, awkward boy. He's becoming handsome. He's, you know, not the kid who gets, you know, accidentally pushed in the hallway. He's, you know, the, the person in the hallway that people move out of the way from. Right. Because, you know, not because he's mean or anything. It's just because he's physically strong and you can look at him and say, you know, if you walk into him, you know, you're not going to go anywhere. Um, so people are polite to him and he gets respect, not because of what he's doing, but because of what he's becoming. And everybody in school can see the change within him. Terry really sees the change. Um, Terry sees the change when they ride the bus to school together. Terry sees the change when they sit at the lunch table together with his sister. You know, all the time sneaking looks at him and wondering, you know, how am I going to reach him? Is he the right one? You know, questions like that start going through Terry's head. Um, Neil, does he have questions like that too? Yes, he does, but he doesn't really know how to reach Terry. Nobody's ever taught him. He doesn't have 
other, you know, teenage friends or boys that he can say, well, there's this girl I like, how do I reach her? He doesn't have those, you know, assets at this point. So it takes time. But over time and throughout high school, the two of them do finally, they're not going to necessarily hook up or anything like that, but they do find each other. And they do realize that they are meant for each other and that they are soulmates for each other. Okay? But as the title of the book says, Torn Apart, um, they don't actually get to express those feelings in high school. They are torn apart because Terry unfortunately, moves away to school and her parents relocate, you know, to a different job. You know, that tears the two of them apart before they can actually, you know, sit down and say those words, you know, for for each of them to sit down and say, I love you. They never get that opportunity in high school. We've been listening to Christopher Costeca. He is the author of his book, Torn Apart, The Silent Screams of Destiny. Chris, tell us how to get your book. At this point in time, it's an iUniverse exclusive, um, but I'm hoping you can be able to reach it and you know, get it off of places like Amazon, places like that. So read my book, please. Thank you so much, Chris, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Love and Accept Yourself Now, a memoir. And the author is Krissa Constantine. And Krissa joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Krissa. 
Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us, and you're going to take us on quite a life journey here. What you've gone through, this tells your story of how your ovarian cancer experience taught you to love and accept yourself 100%, and, and of course, the whole mission here, you hopefully will help a whole lot of people do the same thing. You say this, I had to face invasive cancer as a single woman without family, and to survive, I had to quickly become much stronger and abandon all negativity. I had to reinvent myself. Well, that is uh, obviously quite a process. A lot of people uh, never seem to even think about that, but for some reason you went there, uh, and the rest is history. Here you are, and you have this great book out, Love and Accept Yourself. Now, uh, Krissa, let's go back. Uh, what year was it when you found out about your cancer? It was in 2005, uh, in July. 2005. What were you doing at the time? I was um, sitting on my bed, um, just thinking about um, the operation that I had. Uh, they removed both ovaries um, because um, they were suspecting cancer, but they weren't quite sure. And my doctor told me he would call me that day uh, to tell me um, if it was cancer or not. And then I did hear that it was cancer. And uh, I was absolutely horrified, needless to say. And then I had to have a hysterectomy uh, just a few weeks later um, because uh, they suspected invasive cancer. And it was a total surprise. And that's the problem with ovarian cancer is that uh, it doesn't give symptoms uh, early enough. And even now, to this day, we do not have an accurate test for um, uh, early detection. So unfortunately, most of the time, it sneaks up on you, and when they do diagnose it, it's usually stage 3, which is invasive, or stage 4, which is metastatic. So I was sitting on my bed and uh, heard it from the doctor that uh, I needed another operation. Oh, my goodness. And so... A day it, I'll never forget, July the 14th, yes. 2005. I'm sure it's a day you'll never forget. So uh, where, what was your thinking like back then? I mean, how, how, I mean, obviously, it's much different today. What was your thinking like? I um, was wondering how I was going to go through this. I um, didn't know um, who to turn to. Uh, um, there were so many doctors involved um, that I had to deal with, and things were happening so fast. And there was a lot of confusion also at the beginning with the diagnosis. Uh, some pathologists said it was cancer, some said it wasn't. Um, um, just, I was absolutely, uh, needless to say, horrified and um, very, very uh, jumpy, very um, insecure. But when I did see a booklet from the BC Cancer Agency in Vancouver that said that people with uh, uh, stage 3 uh, ovarian cancer usually do not survive. Mm. That is what really changed things for me. I remember standing in my kitchen reading that booklet and I, I screamed a couple of times and thought, no, I'm only 54 years old. Mm. I'm not ready to die. I must do something. And I knew uh, that my computer technician was also a counselor. And um, I had a rapport with him and I thought, I'll call him and see if he'll come over to the house and help me. And he decided to come over and help me. And that is what really changed my life and also, in the end, led to this book. 
so, in that process of him helping me through this, so, the, the horror of um, being diagnosed and having to go through chemo. So what was the, the, I guess the words, the wisdom, the foresight of how did he get you thinking in this positive way? Because obviously uh, this negative attitude, this, this uh, self-destructive, uh, I guess you probably, like everyone else, would say, well, I'm going to die. How could you possibly turn that around? What did he say to you? Amazingly, the first day he came over, he um, told me that um, I must have been suppressing my true nature for 54 years. Uh, he knew me already, so he kind of suspected that, and I said, hey, I guess that's right. And then he said, come over to the bathroom mirror. I want you to stand in front of that mirror and say, I love you to yourself, and I want you to say that every 30 minutes from now on for the next few weeks, because... When you learn to love yourself, um, as scientists have proven, when you have all these positive thoughts, it actually sends good biochemical messages all throughout your body. Hmm. And conversely, when you have negative thoughts, it sends uh, negative biochemical messages all the way down to your toes. Um, this can be verified now. This has been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. So he is not a scientist, but he uh, is a very gifted counselor who's done a lot of reading and he has a lot of practical experience. And he had an instinct for what would help me. And that is what really helped me because I knew I loved myself maybe about 80%, but not 100%. And then when I was looking at myself at first, I found it hard to say I love you. But after a few days, it became a little bit easier. And after a few weeks, even easier. And uh, I realized maybe I don't have too much time left. I had no idea what was going to happen, um, you know, having stage three. But I thought whatever I, time I have left, I want it to be quality time. And I know that if I truly love myself, I will have quality time. So, but that was, was a, um, a day that really changed my life, um, over and above the cancer diagnosis. Yes, you had to go through chemo and radiation. And radiation. Two huge operations. One to remove the ovaries um, because there was a system I left ovary that was discovered with um, uh, ultrasound. No blood test worked on me. Uh, there are many people apparently where blood tests are absolutely useless and I was one of these. Um, so I had uh, first they removed the ovaries and then the pathologist analyzed the cyst, found out that it was um, invasive cancer and then I had to have a hysterectomy to remove, a total hysterectomy actually, to remove all the other organs that were affected by the cancer. And then because they suspected that there were some, there might have been some loose cancer cells wandering around in my body, they called it microscopic cancer. They thought just to be sure, they um, better give me three rounds of chemo. And then after that, six weeks of uh, radiation on top of that, again, just to be sure that uh, they would try their darndest to stop a uh, recurrence. So that's the whole <laughs> process. Um, not everybody goes through all that. Some people just have uh, surgery. Some people just have chemo. Some people just have radiation. But I had all three things, plus two huge operations. You were raised in a, as you put it, a highly competitive environment. Uh, university yeah. academics, wealthy entrepreneurs, often those kinds of people, pretty driven folks can be highly critical and, and really non-accepting. Yes, I grew up uh, in Vancouver, uh, close to the University of British Columbia, and at that time, um, a lot of the professors lived very close to the university, and 
many of them were um, extremely ambitious and um, very critical, very condescending, at that time anyway. And I, being the, the daughter of a professor myself, I'm, I felt that um, I really had to prove myself. And all the kids with professors were treated this way. Anybody who lived in that district, um, the, the kids were all being watched all the time, and saying, well, what are you doing? And um, who do you think you are? Where are you going? Uh, do you have any ambition? What are you going to do with your life? It was this attitude. So it wasn't just my, my parents being ambitious. I was surrounded by people um, who were like this, as well as uh, a lot of wealthy entrepreneurs who lived in a, um, a ritzier part of the area, uh, close to the ocean. Everywhere I went, there was um, an attitude of ambition and um, not uh, an attitude of easy acceptance. People were not accepted just for who they were. And that's another thing my counselor did for me. He says, the Buddhists say, no self, no problem, and you're perfect just the way you are. That's another thing that absolutely stunned me. I, I looked at him, I went, I'm perfect just the way I am? <laughs> yeah. Whether you do anything great or not, I went, amazing! Yeah. And it started sinking in after a while. Hmm. Hey, you know, we're all gifts from God. We all have gifts to give. I've never met a single person who can't do anything. N not once have I ever met that. Everybody has a gift. All right, it's like a garden. Some people are blades of grass. Some people are um, huge plants, be beautiful big flowering plants. Uh, if you go to a forest, somebody might be a redwood. Somebody might be a little fern. But it's all beautiful, and it's all a gift. So we should be celebrating the, the gifts that we all have to give instead of concentrating on those little differences and trying to make each other feel bad because of the differences. Obviously... So that's something, yes. Obviously, a lot of people out there have no self-esteem, and they're beaten down by all kinds of situations that they're in, whether it's uh, something that they can control or can't control, uh, there's a, there's a lot of folks on drugs trying to mm -hmm. maintain just to kind of get through the day, isn't there? Oh, yes. And that's another thing. I was thinking if we'd be such a happy society here in North America, including Canada and the States, uh, I don't think too many of those um, drug uh, lords and barons down there in Central and South America would be making yeah. the kind of money they're making. <laughs> right. That's exactly it. Um, if the, and it, I think it boils down to love and acceptance. If people would feel loved and accepted. Uh, it would make an enormous difference if we would all be more aware of this, how important it is. And I also believe that words can kill people. It's an easy way to kill somebody. If you inject them with uh, feelings of um, inadequacy by just saying a few words like, you're stupid and you're lazy, you're useless, mm -hmm. some people really take that seriously and it can actually destroy them. So I think we all need to be more careful what we say. This is not just something that happens in childhood or on the schoolyard. This is not just bullying there. It's bullying everywhere at all levels, at right. all ages, yeah. both sexes, a lot everywhere. Of a lot of bullies out there that just, for some reason, I don't know what it is, that they actually get some kind of fulfillment out of being a bully. But I yes. guess that's their weakness. You know, they're hurting, it's too. It's their weakness, yes. yeah. Yeah, they're hurting, too, but that's the way they react to their pain i guess they got to inflict pain yes. on somebody else you know and they're hoping they'll feel better yeah yeah your story is broken into three parts the first part the story of your cancer diagnosis and then your surgeries and the chemo and then you know the, this amazing counselor that helped you your second part you use some short stories to illustrate the need for self-love now are these around other people that you know these short stories are again focused on what you went through <clears throat> these are, um, in many ways, um, 
they I focus on other people. Um, I'm in there in the stories, but the focus is on the others because once I learned how to accept myself totally, I looked back in my life and wanted to analyze the interactions I had with other people. Um, and I realized that so many of the people I met did not love themselves. Mm. And uh, I also realized that some of them really did. There, I call these people angels. There are, there are a few people I've met who are totally, totally, totally in that beautiful, um, like a layer above the clouds. Um, they're, they're spiritually highly evolved people who seem to understand somehow that they are perfect just the way they are and they, they radiate sunshine wherever they go. They, they're full of love, full of acceptance. But in many cases, people suffered so much because they didn't love themselves. Like I wrote one story about a boy um, I used to teach um, in elementary and also middle school. And one boy wanted to prove himself by joining a gang. He, he wanted to show that he was a macho man and um, something terrible happened to him. Uh, mm. All because he, right. he didn't feel good enough the way he was. He had to prove himself. So I wanted to use these stories to illustrate how important it is to get to that stage of uh, self-love and self-acceptance. And your part three is after your chemo and your radiation and how you reach this total self-love and acceptance. And, of course, you write about the importance of love. It's interesting that you should talk about standing in front of that mirror. We all have heard about self-talk, but what a very powerful, direct message to look yourself in the eye and say, I love you. That, that is, it's amazing that that transformed your life. Yes, absolutely. And it's um, not just a physical thing like um, I don't just love the way I look. It's also I love who I am right. and every aspect of myself, not just my appearance. Right. But everything, everything, absolutely everything. Well, uh, you obviously are on a mission to help others. You've got some kind of a, I read about it somewhere. You, you're doing some things to help people where, where you're living or how is this? Oh, yes. Yes, I uh, facilitated a grief support group at a church uh, close by and uh, uh, people who have um, recently been bereaved in some way. And I remember trying to get them to focus on themselves. Um, this was a couple of years ago. And I said, why don't you go home and uh, stand in front of the mirror and say, I love you, just to concentrate a bit on yourself instead of um, thinking constantly about the person you've lost. And the next week, they all came back without fail, um, all 10 people and said, I cannot say that I love myself. They, they said, I, I, I just, I see all my faults when I look in the mirror and in every way, whether it's character or brains or whatever. And um, so I tried very hard uh, that way. And I also belong to um, some organizations where I volunteer to help raise money uh, for cancer, um, whether it's like there's a fascinating um, organization called the Tour de Rock here on our island, Vancouver Island. Uh, sometimes people call Vancouver Island the Rock, <laughs> so it's called the Tour de Rock. And um, every once in a while, um, some of the policemen uh, get together and actually ride around, uh, cycle around the whole island uh, to raise money for children with cancer and for a place called Camp Good Times, which is um, on the lower mainland in Vancouver where kids who have cancer go to stay for a few weeks to just enjoy themselves and be pampered and so I've been involved with things like this and um, fundraising also to expand the, the cancer agency in Victoria to have more um, patient counseling because they realize that um, when you have this diagnosis of cancer, it's not just enough to have uh, physical treatments. You do need psychological help as well, and they just 
are going to open up a new patient counseling and uh, patient and family counseling center in Victoria. So I hope to raise a bit of money for that too, and just to raise awareness. So I find these things very heartwarming. Right. Well, I'm sure you do, and you're a great example, and obviously of just made this memoir, created this memoir for everyone to read, Love and Accept Yourself Now, a memoir, and Chrissa Constantine, that's who we've been listening to, and Chrissa, tell us how to get your book. It's on Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, Google Books, um, it can be ordered through booksellers or through iUniverse, through the publisher as well. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 or 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Republican Party, a father and son review of GOP history. And the authors are Ron Leone and his son, Jay, and they both join us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ron. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hello, Jay. Hi. Great to have you with us. Jay is 14 years old now. And when they started, he was 11 years old. Uh, first of all, let's go back, Ron and Jay, to when this first kind of the genesis of this, this idea came about. How did that happen, Ron? Well, my son Jay was in sixth grade at the time, 11 years old, and he would watch the news in the morning and, you know, before school and in the evenings. And that was around 2008 uh, with the election. And he would see things related to that, that whole process, the election process and the Tea Party movement. And he started asking a lot of questions that 
after a few months, I just couldn't simply answer them. So I sat down with them and we started to research it together. And Jay, how did that make you feel? Uh, you you had a lot of questions. Uh, was it kind of challenging at first, or did it just seem to fit uh, what you were looking for? What I was looking for at the time, I believe, was just a simple answer. But he did give me what what I uh, more than what I wanted because it went back to the founding of the party. It goes all the way to today and what they tried to do. And that really uh, helped me understand the Republican Party. Well, history always is a way to go. If you want to understand something today, you go back in history, and usually uh, history has the answers. So I guess let's go back. Uh, Ron, why don't we start with you? And Jay, please jump in. Uh, you know, we course know that the uh, Republican Party hasn't been around since the inception of this country. It came about, uh, I guess it was uh, just before the Civil War. So how did that happen, Ron? Well, you had uh, a number of um, individuals get together and it was a breakup of previous parties. And it ended up in, in Ripon, Wisconsin, where they came together with a, you know, a variety of, of different things. Um, that they wanted to accomplish. Um, you had, uh, just to give you a few of them, um, you had the uh, American Know Nothing Party, um, which ended up breaking up. You had the Whigs that broke up. This is all in the 1850s. And then in 1854, they came together with a, a common goal of initially wanting to stop slavery from expanding. And then once they were able to accomplish that in their minds, then they wanted to get rid of slavery altogether. They wanted to abolish it. That was one of their fundamental aspects that they wanted to accomplish. Fremont was their first candidate in 56 who lost, obviously. And then Lincoln, four years later, won. Jay, when you started learning about this and and today of course it seems like the african americans the black population is more aligned with democrats than they are with republicans but here it all started out with the republican party trying to help african americans how did that i mean how did that how does that strike you well i find it interesting because like like you said there it was the republican party that originally wanted to help the slaves lincoln was their first candidate that, well, not first candidate, the first president that, you know, obviously started the Civil War, not started, but wanted to free the slaves from the South. And I think some of that information got lost over time, and people don't really look at history that way, and they don't want to look, really, I think. That's kind of sad, but I think that's how it got lost over time. Well, as we all know, as we've already said, how much we can learn from history, and often history will repeat itself if we don't learn the the lessons that uh, can be learned from history. So uh, when you look back at President Abraham Lincoln, uh, Jay, uh, how do you see him? Uh, what does he mean to you as a 14-year-old? 
aside from, you know, freeing the slaves and what you learn in school, pretty much from the start, he did a lot of things that freed the slaves. Like um, the 1862 Emancipation Proclamation, and he really tried over and over again to at least reason with the South to free the slaves. Um, he also passed the 13th Amendment in 65, and um, that was no slaves. He abolished slavery, and that is interesting to me, not only as history, but also as a person. Well, you have an amazing understanding for a young man most your age uh, probably don't know these things at all. And, of course, it's so important for young people to understand. Right, Ron? Absolutely. And why do you think it's so important? It's, it's, I, don't, I don't know how much goes on in the schools anymore. I've, I'm not really familiar with what's being taught. Well, nor was I at the time, which is why I figured the best thing to, to answer his question would, would be to research it properly rather than give him a, a brief answer as far as specifically what was going on in 2008. Let's show him a history from the beginning so this way he can put it into his own mind how he feels about the parties, you know, the, the two main parties in this country. And when you research one party, we haven't yet uh, chosen whether or not we're going to do the Democrat Party, but by researching the Republican Party, in a two-party system, you see what the Republicans were doing struggling against the other party, which is the Democrats. So if the Republicans are fighting to free slavery during Lincoln's time period, who do you think they're struggling against? It's not a difficult concept. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you view this word that we hear tossed around so much in the news and so many people call themselves conservative? What does conservative mean? What what would you say it meant back in the early days of the Republican Party and what is it what does it come to mean? How do you kind of uh, uh look at that? In in my mind conservatism means to start from a, a clean slate, everyone has the same chance, regardless of your religion, your race, your gender, and any of those things. Everybody gets a fair shot at success in life. And, you know, no, no head starts to, to any particular individual. And, you know, good luck to all of you and go for it. That's, to me, that's capitalism. That's also conservatism. And when you put the two together, it, you know, throughout history, it's shown to be successful. What other presidents, Jay, stood out for you as you did this historical look at the Republican Party? Are there some other presidents that are real foremost in your mind? Um, I like Roosevelt a lot. And um, it was kind of funny. During While we were writing this book, I was also doing a report on uh, Roosevelt I was doing it on illegal immigration and what he did was um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt just to you know, make sure and what he did was he took about half of today's the officers down by the border he took half the number and rounded up 
I think the number was almost half a million. I'm not sure. But, and he deported them. I mean, that's more efficient than what we have today, but it could be argued today as less than, uh, inhumane. But he did also strengthen the Navy and the Army, and he built the Panama Canal, and he just was a, a good president. Just a man of out. a man of action. I guess that's what you saw in him, right? You know, taking action upon his beliefs. Another thing that he did was he took down big businesses because at the time, a lot of big business was affecting the economy because. They needed less jobs for uh, to make more money. So he took down the big businesses, helped a lot of people, and he also voiced a lot of support for nature. He founded many uh, national parks, and he also passed several food acts, like the uh, Meat Inspection Act, made sure that the meat was properly handled, the Pure Food and Drug Act, put warning labels on items that had bad substances, dangerous substances in their food. What do you gain from all of this, Ron? Uh, what are some of the presidents that stand out for you? Well, Reagan, of, of course, um, obviously Lincoln, Eisenhower. Um, I, I learned a lot about Eisenhower as well. And, um, you know, just to talk again about Teddy Roosevelt, he, he gave a speech that I that I thought was very important, and and I put it in the book. And um, simply put, it, it states that we as a nation welcome immigrants from all over the world. However, when you're here, you're an American first and foremost. You're not a hyphenated American. You're not a Polish American, a German American, a Mexican American, a Chinese American. You are an American of whatever descent. And with that in mind, you know, I, I think that went quite a ways also with my son. He's Taiwanese. And he even said when we were researching him, so I'm not a Taiwanese American. I'm an American of Taiwanese descent. And I could see it. I could see the wheels in his head turning that he's starting to realize that we're not a, you know, a hyphenated country. Uh, and that goes a long way. We're a melting pot where we bring the best from all over the world and we bring it here and we meld it. And that's what makes us unique as a country. And we've lost that feeling, haven't we? Uh, very much so. And if you think about it, around about the time where people started hyphenating Americans, right. it's Roosevelt talking about it, we started to balkanize. That's an and, inter and it, interesting point. It's ruining the nation. Right. Yeah, we're we're we should be all Americans and not a hyphenated American because suddenly you're not as connected, are you? If you're hyphenated, you're not as rooted connected. Absolutely. If if you're not melded in with everybody else. Mhm. Mm yeah, and part of his speech said when you come to this country, you need to adapt to this country. The country doesn't adapt to you. Hmm. Very well and, put. Yes, we we need that speech you need to go out and give those speeches, Jay. You need to start <laughs> reading that speech everywhere. <laughs> I can see the wheels turning in his head as, as yeah. we reach that, that particular aspect of, of Teddy Roosevelt. 
you know, he did some good things and he did some things that probably wouldn't be considered good. I wish we had more time. We could have done a book on each of the presidents. Right. Well, Jay, a final question to you. What do your peers of boys and uh, or young men and young women your age, what do they feel about you being an author? Um, there's different um, reactions I usually get. Most are usually surprised because you don't see a 14-year-old <laughs> or rather even in a 12-year-old because that was when the time the book came out or 11-year-old. And you just don't see people that young publish books. So most of them were surprised and only a few were actually interested in what I was doing and they actually wanted to read the book and I found that interesting. Well, that is. That is interesting. It's too bad there weren't more. Obviously, you would want everyone to read a book like this because so much can be learned from history. The Republican Party, a father and son review of GOP history. Ron, tell us how to get your book. You can go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNobles.com and type in the Republican Party. Uh, put in our last name, Leone, L-A-O-N-E, and it should come up. It's in soft cover, hard cover, Kindle, um, Nook book, um, iBook as well. So it's it's pretty much available to anybody with any device. Jay, thank you so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. And thank you, Ron. Thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.